Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Jude. So let me just do a show of hands. When was the last time you ever did a Bible study or heard a teaching on the book of Jude? Nobody's raising their hands. But it was probably not recent, though, was it? Or was a long time ago? Oh, Andrea Waitley. Okay. Okay. So, Andrea, if you're watching this, which I'm sure you probably are, hopefully I can hold a candle to your teaching at Brown Bag back in the day. No, I'm just joking. Um, so, Acts, the book of Acts, has been called the Acts of the Apostles. That's the nickname of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Jude has been nicknamed the Acts of the Apostates. And we're going to talk about apostasy tonight. That may be a word that you're not familiar with. Is anybody familiar with the word apostasy? Um, It's maybe a word that we're not that familiar with. Um, So, Let's do a little bit of background before we actually dive into the book because um, this is a very short book. It only has 25 verses, not just chapters. There's one chapter with 25 verses. And so I'm hoping for the next three weeks to mine the book of Jude for all that it's, all that it's worth with all of its riches. But let's just start. Who wrote the book of Jude? Who's the author? Well, obviously it's Jude. Who was Jude? Jude was the brother or half-brother of Jesus. And when we say half-brother, what do we mean by that? Well, Jude's parents were Mary and Joseph, and so Jesus grew up with his brother Jude. Now, here's the irony about Jesus' brothers. Did Jesus' brothers and sisters believe in him while he was the Messiah walking around on earth? No, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they believed. In John 7, 1 through 5, um, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the the Jews' feast of the booth was, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him who were his brothers well James the author of the book of James was one of Jesus's brothers and Jude was one of the other brothers and so at the time of Jesus's ministry they did not believe in him but we know that after the resurrection in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 14 all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers So who was in the upper room praying after the resurrection, 40 days later, waiting for the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? His brothers. So Jude is the brother of Jesus. Okay? Now, let's just read the opening, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to spend some time on this because the way that Jude opens his Letter. By the way, what's a letter called? It's called an epistle. That's just the word for a letter. Jude's writing this letter to, we don't really know who the audience is. Uh, We don't know 
who this church was. We don't know who these people were. We just know that these were Christians that were very dear to Jude because he has a pastor's heart where he wants to protect them really from these false teachers. So let's, let's see how he frames. I'm going to explain to you why he opens the way he opens. Okay, so let's, let's read verses 1 and 2. Everybody there in Jude? It's the last book before Revelation, so hopefully everybody found it. All right. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I find it interesting. How does Jude identify himself? He identifies himself as a servant or a bondservant, okay. which is kind of interesting because he doesn't elevate himself as the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus' brother, so you need to listen to what I have to say because I'm the man. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a servant. And I'm James's brother, which was also the brother of Jesus. And so he refers to himself as a servant. But I want to, to, to show you, and if you haven't realized this by now, I'm a big fan of the Trinity. Um, wrote a book on it. Here is the way that Jude starts his letter. Three descriptions, and they're all centered around the three persons of the Trinity. Now, I'm going to look at these the way that they are ordered in the Greek text, not in your English translations. So your English translations, for some reason, at least the ESV, does not put it in the order that the Greek text does. So in the actual Greek, the original language, the first person to be listed is the Father. Beloved in God the Father. So the very first thing that Jude wants us to know is that God the Father loves us, his people. Now, that word loved or beloved is the Greek word agapeo. We get our word agape from it. It's that unconditional, covenant, faithful love that God has for undeserving sinners. So, let's ask the question, when did God set his love upon us? It's interesting. Let me teach you a little bit of Greek. We're, we can go a little bit deeper here tonight than we can go on Sunday mornings because we have the time. Let me teach you a Greek tense. It's called the perfect tense. We don't really have that in our English translations as much as we, we do in the Greek. The perfect tense is a past tense verb. Okay? But it's not just simple past tense. Like a simple past tense verb would be, I went to Walmart. Okay? The perfect tense is basically an action came to a completion in the past, but it continues with ongoing results all the way into the present. So really you could translate this, God at one point loved us, and he keeps on continuing to love us. It's a love that never, ever ends. It's really the way that Greek tense is. So before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created, God loved us. He set his affection upon us. We know Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, obviously, this passage talks about us being chosen, us being predestined, but God did that because he loved us. So let me ask you a question. Before the world was even made, was there anything within us that would cause or move God the Father to love us or to choose us? The answer is no. There was nothing in us that merited that love. There was nothing in us that drew that love out of God. It wasn't as if God looked down upon us and said, those are a bunch of great people. I'm going to love them because they're so awesome. As a matter of fact, God knew and ordained in advance that Adam and Eve would sin and would plunge the entire world into sin and helplessness. And God looked at the human race as helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound and said, I'm going to set my affection upon my people. Now, I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture that's going to blow your mind. It's in Zephaniah 3.17. When was the last time you read Zephaniah? This morning in my quiet time, I did an in-depth study of Zephaniah. No, I'm... If you did, that's awesome. So Zephaniah 3.17, this is God speaking. Okay. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And listen to these three things that God will do. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now think about that. These are normally words that are used in the Psalms for how we are to worship God. But this is how God treats or, 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 or acts towards us. He will quiet you by his love. I think this is the only place in the Bible where it says God sings. And who's he singing over? Us. Now, it's not because we deserve it. And it's not because we're all that. It's because God is a God of love, unconditional love, and he's choosing to love us. We're beloved in God the Father. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, talking again, we're talking about the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity, God the Father. God being rich in mercy because of the great love, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, that's Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. What does immeasurable mean? You can't measure it. Can you measure God's love for you? Get out a yardstick, get out a ruler, get out, uh, what, what's, what do the surveyors use, like the digital? You can't even measure God's love for you. Now stop and just think about the magnitude of that. That should humble us deeply to know that the Father, the Heavenly Father, the Creator of all things, loves us with an immeasurable love. So much so that John, in 1 John, uses the word behold or see. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So Jude begins his letter with a Trinitarian formula to remind us of who we are in each person of the Trinity. And he starts in the Greek text with God the Father. You are loved immeasurably, immensely, powerfully by God the Father before the foundation of the world. That love stands secure. It's an unconditional covenant love that God has for his elect, for his people. Now, Secondly, in the Greek text, if we're going to follow the, the formula of the Trinity, who comes next in the Trinity? Father, Son. Okay, so he says, secondly there, we are kept for or by Jesus Christ. We're kept. Now, this is also in the perfect tense which means that Jesus not only kept us or guarded us or, or bought us at one point in time on the cross, but he continues to hold us to keep us. That word for kept, I don't know if you guys have other translations, but it means preserved, guarded. Jesus guards us. He preserves us. He keeps us. He holds us fast. So this is the doctrine of what we call eternal security. The fact that Jesus holds us in his grip. Okay, so how does Jesus guard us? How does Jesus hold us? John 10, 27 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Okay, stop right there. They will never perish. That is what we call, well, it's a double negative in the Greek language. It means they will never, no, not ever perish. Why? Because Jesus gives them eternal life. And if Jesus gives us eternal life, and perish means to suffer eternally in hell. Will we ever perish? No, not ever. Why? Let's keep reading. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I've said this many times here to Emmanuel. We are in the double grip of Jesus and the Father, and no one can come and snatch us out. The devil can't. Even you can't. If you're truly saved, you can't get yourself out of God's love for you, the Father's love for you, and Jesus' grip on you. We are kept for Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? 35 through, through um, 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Great question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're kept for, we're kept for Jesus Christ. We're in the grip 
of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. God is going to ensure that we are kept through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end... Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will sustain us to the end through Jesus. We will be kept. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will keep you to the end, eternally secure. So Jude begins the letter by saying, number one, you are loved by God the Father. You're eternally secure in your salvation. You're kept by Jesus Christ the Son. Now, let's ask the question, who's the third person of the Trinity? Not a trick question. (laughs) Holy Spirit, okay? Do we see the Holy Spirit mentioned here? No. But we are called to those who are called. So let's just think about it this way. In our salvation, which person of the Trinity does the calling? It's the Holy Spirit. He effectually calls us to salvation by opening our eyes, drawing us to the Father, causing us to be born again. So, the Father loves us and continues to love us. Jesus keeps us and continues to keep us. And the Holy Spirit was the one who called us. And Romans 8, 28-30 kind of combines all these things together. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in the Greek... This is the last word in, the, in that little sentence, called, because it's the most important. Sometimes in the Greek text, the first word in the Greek sentence is the most important. Sometimes the last word is the most important. Um, but what the English translations are doing, they're putting it first because the stress in the Greek text is really for it to be what we're supposed to be called, what we're supposed to be drawing our attention to. But... The actual order puts it last in the Greek. So I don't, I'm not trying to confuse you. What, what I'm trying to say here is that from the very beginning of Jude's epistle, we see the great the- theological truth of how the Trinity is not frustrated in securing our salvation from the very first verse of Jude. So what do we see here? We are eternally loved by the Father. We are securely kept by the Son, and we are effectually called by the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect unison to bring about our salvation from first to last to keep us saved, to guard us. Now, why does Jude start with this? 
we need to be very clear from the opening verses, this opening verse here. It sets the stage for the confidence that his readers will have in their situation, and it sets the context for the rest of the letter. The big question that somebody reading Jude or the original audience would be having is this. What if I'm an apostate? And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. What if I have somehow lost my salvation? What if I commit this great sin of falling away? Now, we're not going to get to this until a few weeks, but if you look at verse 24 and 25, Jude bookends his letter, the first verse, the last verse, with a theological statement about those who are truly Christians are eternally secure. They're kept by God's grace. Okay? May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This will make more sense as we go through the book of Jude why Jude starts out by reminding us of our security in the Trinity for those that are truly saved. Now, what's Jude's purpose in writing? Why did he write this letter? Well, let's keep looking here. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So why did he, what was he originally planning to write about? I was going to sit down and I was going to write you a letter about our salvation. I'm not sure what he was going to say. Maybe some teachings of Jesus, teachings of Paul, Peter. I'm a, Jude's like, I, I intended to write to you a letter about our common salvation. But... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Four certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to address the issue of apostasy and contending for the faith. Now, I've been using the word apostasy. What is it? What is apostasy? Let me give you kind of some bullet points here to kind of build a case for what the Bible means. It's an initial acceptance intellectually of the scriptures or mental assent to the facts of the gospel, but you don't necessarily have true saving faith. So an apostate, all right, let me, let me just give you a category here. We're not talking about somebody in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who's never heard the gospel, and they die in their sins because they never heard. An apostate is someone who has professed faith in Christ and falls away. But we need to be very careful. It does not mean that he or she lost their salvation. It means they may, have in, they may have intellectually understood the facts of the gospel. They may have mentally assented to a creed, but there was no genuine saving faith. It's not just false doctrine. 
An apostate can acknowledge certain doctrinal truths but fail to believe them in his or her heart. Now, can a true Christian commit the sin of apostasy? No. A true Christian can sometimes fall into doctrinal error and backslide, but that's not apostasy. So what is it? Here's apostasy. It's the deliberate, stubborn, willful rejection of truth after it's known. It's committed by non-believers, not believers who are truly saved. Let me give you an example. A sad example. We talked about this back when we did the Progressive Christianity talk a few months back. Joshua Harris. Okay, Joshua Harris, back in the late 90s, wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Big time speaker. Um, he was, at, like he spoke at Desiring God with John Piper. He was platformed at the Together for the Gospel. He was a big time speaker. He was a pastor of a megachurch. Wrote some books on theology preach sermons. Two summers ago, he came out on Instagram and said, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm rejecting all of that. And as a matter of fact, I've been unfair to the, to the um, gay community, and I apologize and ask your forgiveness for not supporting gay marriage. And uh, then he started showing up at like gay pride events, and, um, and he actually used the word, I knowingly am rejecting the gospel. So, he did not lose his salvation because you can't lose what you never had. He had mental assent. He knew how to preach. He knew how to put on conferences. He knew how to lead. But he deliberately, stubbornly, willfully walked away or rejected what he once embraced. And we see this in the scriptures. A couple examples. John 6, 66. After this, this was, remember Jesus fed the 5,000? And they were happy that they got a happy meal from Jesus. <laughs> and they kept saying, we want more of this. And then Jesus crosses the river and goes into the synagogue in Capernaum and begins to teach like really hard truths about the gospel and these people are like, uh, we like the Happy Meal, Jesus. We like the 5,000, but what you're saying here is not, we don't like that. So after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, we're done. We're not going to continue. There's going to be a future time of great apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is, re is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. That word rebellion there is the Greek word for apostasy. There will be a great falling away, a great apostasy in the end times right before the Antichrist shows up. And then 1 John 2.19 says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
So there was a group of people in the church that left, that walked away, that rejected. And John says they went out because they really weren't of us. They played a good game. They played the part. They made a profession of faith, but they had no possession of faith. They walked away. So the issue that Jude is warning against in his letter is the danger of people falling away or committing the sin. And so he initially said, hey, I want to write to you guys a letter about our common salvation, but I'm changing my purpose here, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally guiding him to do so, said, I've got to appeal to you to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, what does it mean to contend? What does it mean to contend? It's in a present tense verb, which means it's an ongoing battle, a constant struggle. It's the only time this word's used in the New Testament. It means to intensely wrestle. We get our word agonize from it. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we to fight with people? What are we to fight for? The, not just any faith, but what? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we are to fight not people. We are to fight for the biblical faith, the truth, the faith that was, what does it mean it was once for all delivered to the saints? Does it mean it changes over time? Does it mean we can add to it? No, the, the final full revelation of God's truth given to us through the apostles in the scriptures delivered to us. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6-9, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort Key word there. They want to distort the gospel. Same thing's happening here in Jude. They want to distort the truth. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, the one that was once and for all delivered, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say it again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So this faith that Jude is talking about that we contend for is the actual body of truth that we have in the scriptures that is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, that is his purpose in writing. So let me just ask you a question, and I think it's got an obvious answer. Why, in his day and in our day, 
do we need to be constantly battling for the faith? Is the faith under attack? Is it under attack all the time? Is it under attack majorly right now? Okay. So again, Jude doesn't say, I want you to go fight people. He says, I want you to fight for the faith. Now, what does that mean, to fight for the faith? Do you think we live in a Christian culture where a lot of people are being, I, I, I hate to use the word, cowardly? When it comes to the faith? I don't want to say anything that's going to offend. It requires boldness, doesn't it? It requires to know what the faith is. It looks like you were going to say something. <laughs> Which time? Which time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're the faith, once and for all, delivered. Here's the thing. I'm not going to backtrack to what we talked about a few months ago, but the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints is under attack by the world, but it's also being under attack by people within the church, the progressive movement. Okay? Now, let's go back to Jude, because what's the issue? What was the major problem in the church in the situation to which Jude was addressing, writing to his audience. Look there at verse 4. What does it start with? 4. Here's the reason why I changed gears and told you that I was going to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have, listen to the language he uses here, crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So a group, doesn't give the name, just certain people, had crept in unnoticed. Hmm. Now, most of the time in churches, blatant heresy or false teaching does not just announce itself and just pop up all at once. A wolf doesn't walk in with a name tag saying, hey, I'm a wolf. They try to creep in unnoticed. It slowly happens over time. This word was used of a criminal who would secretly slip back into a country after he'd been exiled, and he tries to sneak back in. It means to go down alongside, to try to influence. So these people crept, they crept in, they snuck in. They tried to go unnoticed, tried to go in under the radar. It's not like they're going to come up on stage and push the pastor away and start preaching false teaching. But it could be this. I've seen this happen at my former church. It could be this. Starting to have home groups where they talk about the pastor behind his back 
and say, do you agree with the direction our church is going with our pastor? Or they may pop into a growth group and start spouting things off that are a little off. Hey, let's go to coffee together. I want to get to know you better. And then they start talking about weird things. They're going to do it under the radar. They're going to try to be sneaky. They crept in unnoticed. Now, who were they? We really don't know. In Galatians, they were the Judaizers. Galatians and Philippians, the Judaizers came in and tried to distort people. In the book of Revelation, um, to the seven churches, there was a group called the Nicolaitans that came in that tried to, to cause problems. We really don't know who they are, but we have a description of their character. How does Jude describe them? He says they are ungodly people. They're ungodly. Now, they maybe knew how to talk about God, but they had no reverence for Him or gave Him true worship. They know a lot about God, but they don't know God. Ungodly. Now, what are they doing? So the character is their... Okay, so here's the, the character. They're sneaky, and they're ungodly. But what were they doing? They were perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Now let me give you a word for this, okay? Perverting God's grace into sensuality. Okay, let's just, before I give you the word, the word's licentiousness, okay? Or license, or cheap grace. Okay, first of all, what does it mean to pervert? To twist. What were they perverting? Read, read your text carefully. What were they perverting? What were they twisting? God's grace. What were they perverting or twisting it into? Sensuality. Okay, so what they're basically saying is this. God's a God of grace, right? God loves to forgive. He's a forgiving God. You know that you can't lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. God's going to forgive you. So because God forgives you and God loves you and you're not going to lose your salvation, why don't you just go sin your heart out and have as much fun as you can because God loves to forgive. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Let's keep this relationship going for as long as we can. Now, half-truth. Does God forgive? But does that mean that we have the license to go live however we want and bank upon God's forgiveness and live unholy lives? No. So these people were basically saying, this is how it's sneaky. Because they're talking about God's grace. It's not like they're coming in teaching something that would be, like, outrightly heretical. It's like, it sounds kind of good. Hey, God's great. God's gracious, God's loving, God's kind. You can bank upon God's character, but you really know, you know, you can, you can I mean, just, just go, go give into that temptation. What's sensuality? What is sensuality? It's, I mean, it could be sexual sin, but it's mainly living according to your lusts. Basically, they were saying, to, these people were creeping in and saying to the church, Pretty much, 
Give in to the lust of your flesh. Give in to temptation. Live however you want because after all, at the end of the day, God's going to just forgive you. Now, why is this such a temptation? You can have your cake and eat it too, can't you? Because in a way, you're still acknowledging God, aren't you? It's not like you become an atheist. You're actually saying, I can live however I want, and God's going to bail me out and forgive me. So in the fleshly mind, you can see how enticing that is. You like to indulge the flesh, and you're not denying God, saying God doesn't exist. You're actually saying God does exist, and he pretty much lets me do what I want because he can just forgive me. So it's definitely a very sinful way of viewing the Christian life and actually a very wrong way of looking at God. But what was the ultimate issue? What were they doing? They were denying the lordship of Christ. So they were perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 116, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, notice the wording that Jude uses there to talk about Jesus. Master and Lord. Now, the first word master means absolute sovereign ruler. And Lord means what we think it is, Lord. Now, Jude is very specific in why he chooses that terminology. He could have said and been theologically accurate, they deny our only Savior, Jesus Christ. That would be a theologically accurate statement, would it not? Why does he focus on Lord and Master? What does that language tell us about Jesus? What was the issue of these false teachers? They were denying not the salvation of Christ, because remember what did they say? He died for your sins. You can live however you want. God's grace can cover you. They were denying the lordship of Christ. Basically, they were saying, you know, you can take Jesus as your Savior, but you really don't need to take him as your Lord. You don't need to really worry about repentance. You see, a lot of people like the fact that Jesus will forgive them of their sins, but they don't want to submit to him as ruler of their life. I like Jesus as the Savior part. I like my sins being forgiven. I like heaven. I like the fact that I can have mercy, but I don't like the fact that he's Lord and tells me how to live and rules my life, and I'm accountable to him. So this type of teaching has been known by different things. It's basically called easy believism. Easy believism is basically what it's been called. People will say things like, just believe in Jesus as your Savior. Later on down the road, you can worry about making him Lord. They don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about lordship. Um, A.W. Tozer has a great quote. He says this, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe in a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who's King of kings and Lord of lords. 
You take Jesus as Savior and Lord. Luke 9, what did Jesus say in Luke 9, 23 through 25? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or forfeits or loses himself? The issue for these people was, the way they twisted the gospel was, you can have Jesus forgive your sins and you can live however you want. Because after all, Jesus loves to forgive you because he died on the cross for you and you can just pretty much live as unholy as you want. That's why Jude puts that language in there. They deny our only master and Lord. Listen to, to Chuck Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this in, in his book, The Soul Winner. Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If a man does not live differently from what he did before, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction if there's no change. Okay, so let's, let's just backtrack. Jude begins his letter with a Trinitarian formula to remind true believers that they are beloved by God the Father, they're eternally secure in Jesus, and they're sovereignly called by the Holy Spirit. He was going to write to them about this salvation, but he says, listen, I've gotta, you've got to contend for the faith. Things, the stakes are high because these people have crept in unnoticed, and they're perverting the gospel. They're leading you into sensuality. If you're not careful, they will lead you to apostasy, which means what? A falling away, a rebellion. Okay, so what Jude's going to do now in verses 5 through 7 is he's going to give three Old Testament examples of apostasy. Now, some of these we're more familiar with than others. Jude, is going, Jude likes to do things in threes. He started out with the Trinity. He's going to give three examples of apostasy that we're going to look at tonight. And then he's going to give three more. We'll look at next week. So here's the three, and we're going, to look at, we're going to go back in the Old Testament and read all of these. So here's the three things that he gives. The unbelieving generation during Exodus that wandered for 40 years, he's going to talk about that. Fallen angels, Genesis chapter 6, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So let's read these. Verses 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's example number one. Example number two, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Example number three, verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three examples, different but similar, of apostasy. Now, the first two make a little bit more sense 
than the last one. But let's look at the first one, the Exodus. Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. We know the whole book of Exodus. We, we preached that a couple years ago. We know the whole story. But then leave your finger in Jude and turn to Numbers chapter 13. What happened to that generation? Numbers 13 and 14, we're not going to read all of it, but Numbers 13 and 14 tell us the issue. Okay, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of this since we don't read all of it, just for the sake of time. Moses sends the 12 spies on a reconnaissance mission. What did the 12 spies do? They went into the land of Canaan, the promised land, to scout out the land to see if they could go take the land. Ten came back and said what? We are like grasshoppers to them. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are huge, but there's giants in the land. They're, the army's too big. We can't do this. But two said what? Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. So let's pick up. Let's pick up um, in verse 25, okay? I kind of paraphrase verses 1 through 24. Hopefully you're kind of familiar with this, this account. Okay, at the end of 40 days, you guys there in Numbers 13, 25? At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in there are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. So what, is, what does Caleb say? I'm eager. We can do this. Let's go. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and who seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seen to them. Okay, let's go into chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They're conflicted, right? They thought at that moment in time they were going to go take the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a wonderful land, but the ites are there. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the termites, all the different ites are there. We can't go in except for Joshua and Caleb. So the people began to mourn. And then notice what it says there. 
Verse 2, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Now, what are they saying? It would be better for us to be back as slaves in Egypt. Forget the whole Passover, forget the Red Sea. We'd rather be back in Egypt and die, or at least let us die out of here in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us in this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That's rebellion, isn't it? I don't like Moses. God, all this, think of all the stuff God had done for them. Passover, Red Sea, manna, quail, water from the rock, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, providing stuff for them. And they said, I'm not, a whole congregation said, get us a new leader. Moses is out of here. Let's travel back to Egypt. And then look look, look at how Moses and Aaron respond. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. What's the point there? If God wants us to have this land right now, God can do it. Let's trust in the Lord the way we've trusted in him all the way. And here's the, here's the real key here, verse 9. Only do not, what's your word there? Rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay, great sermon, right? The Lord's with us. The Lord's on our side. God is good. Amen, right? Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. <laughs> okay, how do you really feel about the message there? Stone them. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then Moses begins to intercede for the people like he always does. He's a Christ figure. God says, listen, I've done sign after sign, miracle after miracle. These are rebellious, unbelieving people who'd hate me. How long am I going to put up with them? Well, let's go down to um, verse 26. Now, let's go to verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit 
in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay. What does God say? What did they say earlier? It's better to die in Egypt. It's better to die in the wilderness. And what does God say? I'm giving you option two. You're going to wander around for 40 years. And then you're going to die. Because, listen to the words that God used. You've rebelled, you've despised, you've grumbled. Ultimately, you've not believed. Now, that's major apostasy because what had this generation seen? Red Sea, manna and quail. Pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, water gushing out of a rock. All those wonderful manifestations that we've never seen, and yet God says they do not believe. So they're going to die, perish in the wilderness. So the writer of Hebrews makes a commentary on this in um, Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 12. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What was the issue with that Exodus generation, the first generation? They had an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to fall away from the living God. So, example number one that Jude gives of apostasy, probably the biggest example of apostasy, is the initial Exodus generation, 20 years and older, that died after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, never got to enter the promised land. And the main issue was they had knowledge of God. It's not like they didn't know who God was. These weren't pagans that had never heard of God. They knew God in a very powerful way, but yet they did not believe they rebelled. Okay, so that's example number one. Example number two is almost like science fiction, but we're going to go down that path. So number two... Fallen angels. Now, what in the world is a fallen angel? Isn't that just talking about demons? Yes, but let's ask the question. Look at verse 6, back in Jude here. Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. 
and did what? What did these angels do when they left their proper dwelling? Genesis 6 tells us. Okay? Now, this is a little bit hard for us to comprehend. And when I preached about five years ago through Genesis, we dealt with this, but I know none of you remember that. Um, it's because some of you weren't, weren't even here back then. But let me read to you Genesis 6, the one before. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, who were the sons of God that came and had sexual relationships with the daughters of men and produced this giant offspring called the Nephilim? Okay, maybe you've never heard this before. Most scholars, along with the traditional Jewish belief, the traditional Jewish view. And when I say most scholars, I'm talking about all the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian, modern interpreters like John MacArthur and others. So this is not some far, this is not some far off science fiction view. This is a view that's been the historic early church view. Modern scholars hold to it. And this has been the traditional Jewish rabbinical view. Is that the sons of men were angels who left their position in heaven, took upon flesh like men, had sex with women, produced a race of mighty creatures called the Nephilim, who were half demon, half man. And this is one of the reasons why God brought the flood to destroy this half-breed race. Okay, so let's just stop right there, okay? Angels left their proper dwelling, came down to earth in the form of men, had sexual relations with women. So angels, fallen angels having sex with women, creating a race of giants called the Nephilim who were half demonic, half human. Okay? Okay? These were the fallen angels that left their position. And what did God do to judge them? Look at what he says. He's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Right now, this specific group of angels are in chains of darkness. Now, ultimately, on the final day, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his, his demons. Peter talks about this. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So 
Think about these angels that fell. The fallen angels. Whether these are angels that fell just in the, like, take aside the whole Nephilim and come in and the daughters of earth, which is, I think is what it means, but let's just talk about angels. What did the angels see before they rebelled? Did they know who God was? Did they, did they know, had they seen miracles? Okay, so they had possibly seen a lot of these things happen. We really don't know. The point is, in the first example with the Israelites, were these pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa that never had any knowledge of God? No, these were people that had knowledge of God and rejected God. Angels. Are these people that are, not people, but are these beings that have no knowledge of God? Or are these people, people, are these beings that knew God and yet fell? Okay, they knew God and they fell. Okay, so you've got the Exodus generation, you've got the fallen angels, and then you've got the third example. The third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, some people will say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality, it was their lack of hospitality. They weren't hospitable. That's what I've heard some people argue. What does Jude, the brother of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how does he make a commentary? What does he call it? Jude. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Indulged in sexual immorality and pursued what? Unnatural desire. So it's very clear what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. So, Keep your finger in Jude, and let's go back to Genesis 19. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Again, we won't read the whole story. So, well, let's just start in verse 1. Everybody there, Genesis 19? I told the congregation when I was preaching in Tennessee on Sunday, I said, I've learned two words since I've been here, y'all and fixing to. So I had to keep changing y'all. Are y'all ready to look at this? I kept saying you guys, and they're like, just say y'all. Be one of us and say y'all. Okay, so y'all, are y'all, are y'all in Genesis 19? All right, here, so here we go. The two angels came to Sodom, in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so... Lot knows something here. These, these angels come, and they, they're like, we're not going to bother you. We, we won't stay in your house. We'll just sleep out here on the porch. You know, we'll sleep in the town square. And, and Lot's like, you do not want to be out here after dark. Okay, so verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city 
the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may what? Know them. I want to get to know these guys. Is that what the word means? No. It's the same word. It's the word yada. It's what Adam, Adam, yadad his wife and bore a son, Seth, or Cain. Okay. It means to know them sexually. Okay. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And this is where Lot, like, what are you thinking? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. I got some virgin daughters here. Let, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out by groping at the floor. Okay. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out to the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay, so basically, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't they were being inhospitable to the two angels. They were beaten. All the men of the city were beaten down the door to, to have their way sexually with these men. Yeah. Yeah, Lot, the problem with Lot is that he got too comfortable in Sodom. Lot became a, Lot, if you remember when Abraham and Lot went separate ways, Abraham went to the countryside. Where did Lot go? To the city. And Lot became enamored with Sodom until he had to get out. And you know the story. Get out as quick as you can. Do not look back. His wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And what did God do? God rained down sulfur and fire and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their overt, let's just call it for what it was, the sin of homosexual gang rape is really what they were attempting to do. Okay. Now, Let's ask the question, how is Sodom and Gomorrah different than the first two? Did Sodom and Gomorrah, a pagan city, have knowledge of God? Had they seen miracles of God? Were they in the same category as Israel? No, they were pagan. Were they in the same category as angels? Okay. So you have to ask the question, how is this per se apostasy like the first two apostasy is knowing who god is and rejecting him we can understand it with israel knowing who god is and rejecting him we can know it about the angels and rejecting him but how can sodom and gomorrah be apostasy well romans chapter one tells us that everybody has some knowledge of god but they suppress that knowledge okay now 
Here's another warning against apostasy that Hebrews gives. Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged. But remember what Jesus said to the cities of Tyre and Sidon who saw him in the flesh? It will be more bearable for you on the day of judgment than Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah got judged. But Jesus says there will be greater judgment on those who know the truth and choose to reject the truth. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 10, 29-31, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay. I wrote to you, to contend for the faith, to be strong in the faith, to know the faith, to don't fall out of the faith. Because these certain people snuck in, crept in, these ungodly people, they were perverting the, the, the gospel, they were perverting God's grace, they were not submitting to the lordship of Christ. They are going to cause you trouble to apostatize. apostatize. And I'm going to give you three examples of where we've seen this. The Exodus generation in Numbers that wandered for 40 years and died in the wilderness. The fallen angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let's just ask the question. This is not in your text, but this is what we can find out in the rest of the Bible. What leads false converts to apostatize? Now, I use that word very carefully, false converts. Remember, a true Christian cannot commit this sin. You can fall into grievous sin, you can backslide, but a true, genuine, born-again Christian will not rebel and fall away. Okay. What leads false converts to do this? Well, one reason is persecution. Do you remember the parable of the soils? I preached this about a month ago. You remember the second soil? The soil that fell, for, fell among the the, the stones, the rocky ground. Matthew 13, 20 through 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. What's the key there? Has no root. Endures for a while. Plays the game for a while. But what causes the problem? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is why I think you're going to see a great apostasy happening very soon. Persecution is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. As we see increased persecution in America, you are going to see people saying, I don't want to live with that pressure. I don't want to stand up for Christ if that's what's going to cost me. I'm out. Persecution oftentimes reveals the true Christian from the false. Okay? Now, another thing that may cause somebody to fall away are false teachers. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What are people going to want? I don't want sound doctrine. I'm going to get somebody in here that's going to tickle my ears and eventually I'm going to wander off into myths. So they're going to purposely fall away by getting themselves a false teacher that's going to lead them that way. Another way you could possibly have a person fall away is just by temptation. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Worldliness, getting caught up in the world. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So a person that's not truly saved, but kind of fakes it for a while, they can get caught up so much in the world that they end up just falling away because the world swept them away. They've given in to the desires of the flesh of the world. But they were never truly saved in the first place. Now here's one that's interesting. Some people can get a hardened heart or what the Bible calls a seared conscience. Their conscience is seared as like an iron. Um, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, it says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the, depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. What did, we, what did Jude say? I'm here to write for you to contend for the faith. Timothy says some will depart from the faith. Doing what? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What does it mean to have your conscience seared? You've listened so much to false doctrine or you've gained, gotten so much into sin that you no longer are bothered by that. You're no longer under conviction. You've gotten so numb. Your heart's gotten so hardened to either worldliness or false teaching that it, you're just... It doesn't even affect you anymore. Another thing that can happen too, and I've seen this a lot, not so much here at Emmanuel, but like former churches that I've been in that used to have the public invitation, the altar call. Um, I remember distinctly in my former church numerous times where somebody would come forward at the altar call and they would get all excited and, and you know, you'd present them as a, like, this is a new believer. This is the way we did it back in the day. Somebody would come forward during the altar call. Somebody would meet them down there. They'd fill out a little card and then, you know, talk to them if they want to become a Christian. And at that moment, you'd present the person, Sister so-and-so has come here today, and she's accepted Jesus into her heart. If you want to receive her into our church, give a hearty amen. And then everybody would go, amen. And then everybody afterwards would come up and greet her and welcome the person to the church. And it was like this great big, like, Numerous times I saw that happen, and I never saw that person show up again at church. Never. I don't know if they're saved or not. But here's the thing. 
isolationism and lack of fellowship can cause somebody to fall away. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Jude has a pastor's heart, he has a burden that this congregation does not follow the pattern of the Exodus generation, the fallen angels, or Sodom and Gomorrah, and be influenced by these false teachers that are coming in to distort things. They need to contend, fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we have a few moments left here tonight. Do we have any questions? We've got about six or seven minutes. Anything Yes. I'm going to rephrase your question for the live stream audience. So, just just so I'm going to rephrase I'm going to restate your question just so the live stream audience can know what you're asking. So I'm not sure I understand your exact question. Okay, the people that fall away are not saved. They haven't been predestined or called. Okay. Or kept. Why does it matter if they fall away? Okay, it's because it's basically, if they're not predestined, they're going to fall away anyway kind of thing. Or why does it? Well, here's the thing. Okay, so here's the question. Here, we don't, okay, we can't look into a person's heart and know if they're truly saved. We can see people fall away. And when we observe that, you have two camps. Okay? You've got our friends across town that are in some other types of churches that believe that, okay, we're observing the same person. They profess faith, they fall away. Some church faith traditions would say that was a true believer who lost his or her salvation. Or they chose to walk away. They lost it or they chose to walk away. You can truly be saved and, and, and go from being saved to not being saved. That's, an, that's not what our church believes. That's what other people believe. We would look at that same person and say, Whatever external thing they did, whether they got baptized, professed faith, walked an aisle, went to a Bible study, attended church for a while, they did a great job of outwardly showing that they were saved. But they weren't genuinely saved, and so they fell away. I don't know if that answers your question. Sometimes people are fooled into thinking that they may be saved. They may... Yeah. Here's, here's what I would say. Like on a Sunday morning, here's what I would say. I, unless you're truly deluded, I think people know in their heart of hearts what the truth is. Yeah, I think a person 
I think, if, I think when you go to bed at night and lay your head on your pillow and you really think deeply, I think you know you're faking it. That's just my personal opinion. Now, you may be so blind that you don't, but I think some people, if you really you know, got down deep into their soul, which we can't, you know, but sometimes, you know, but, but for whatever reason, they're faking it. Maybe because of pressure from family or they don't want, they want to save face or they, it makes them feel a little bit of security. I, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Yeah, our childhood has a lot of influence on us. Yeah. Yeah, we get a lot of input from from very very early age speaking into our lives, and so, Jeff or something, something to say. So. Right. 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 Yeah. Yes. You can't fall away from something you don't have. Right. So you if it's tr- if you have true genuine saving faith that God has given to you as a gift, and it goes all the way back to if God's chosen you, and he's predestined you, and he's called you, and he's given you the faith, and he's going to preserve you to the end, from first to last, God's going to keep you. Actually, the Trinity's going to keep you. The Father, the Son, the Spirit's going to keep you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to keep you. So you can't fall away or lose what you... So what you're really falling away from is you're falling away from a false profession, what you thought you had. I've always said it this way. You can make a profession of faith, say it, but not be in possession of faith in Christ. See the difference? One is true inward transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit. The other one is just an outward act. And we can't judge somebody's salvation. We don't know. That's why at the end of the age, the wheat and the tares is going to happen. God's going to make that choice. So even in, in a mixed congregation like this at Emmanuel, you're always going to have the, the saved and the unsaved living side by side, and there's going to be a lot of fakers, but at the end of the age, it'll be made known who was faking and who wasn't. That's not our job to sift it out right now. I can't as pastor go through and be like, okay, you're a faker, so you're out of here. You've got genuine faith, so you can stay. I can't play judge and jury on that because I can't look into the heart. Um, unless it's a church discipline issue where somebody's truly living in, a, in an ungodly lifestyle and is, you know, but that's a totally different issue. All right, it's 8 o'clock. Well, 7.59. I'm going to call it. All right, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll go. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. I do want to just focus in, Lord, on the fact that, um, Father, you have loved us with an everlasting, immeasurable love. Jesus, you have kept us and continue to keep us in your grip. And Holy Spirit, you've called us, and you are uh, the deposit in our hearts, guaranteeing that we'll have that inheritance. And so thank you for saving us from first to last. Help us to be those that contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Help us to be on the lookout for false teachers, for those that may come in and cause problems. Um, help us to look at these examples from the Old Testament of how um, those people uh, rebelled against you and help us to not do that. Help us to have soft hearts towards you. Thank you for loving us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.